Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and you're listening to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to drive giving. QBAC's proactive, personalized approach to engagement helps you build your major gift pipeline, even in a time of social distancing. QBAC's AI-driven system uncovers actionable insights about alumni interest in connections and automatically delivers them to advancement professionals for use in cultivation. QBAC is a force multiplier for development officers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with individuals and converting them into active donors. Learn how to raise more money with less by going to www.qbac.com to schedule a free demo. I would also like to tell you about Responsive Fundraising's training. If you are looking to align your team around a shared understanding of effective fundraising, let's talk about our four frameworks. If your culture doesn't feel right, before you begin any significant planning, launch a capital campaign, hire another member of your team, let's ensure everyone is on the same page. How about inviting us to be on site with your board, leadership team, volunteers, and staff for your next planning event? If you'd prefer a virtual seminar, we can do that too. Let's get your team thinking more critically and carefully about the road ahead. Shoot me an email. I'll also put some information in the show notes. Hi, David. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast this morning. You and I have had trouble. I think we were trying to schedule this meeting with uh, you and your co-author on the new book uh, even before the holidays, so we've done a little bit of rescheduling, but I am delighted to have you here with me this morning. Uh, We're going to talk about the new book, perhaps some big ideas or bold opinions that you've got about the nonprofit sector and fundraising, but uh, before we dive into that, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Good morning. Uh, Thank you for uh, setting us up. Um, well, I'm David O'Brien, and uh, I live in San Diego, California. Um, I uh, basically was in the finance industry for about 40 years, and after that, much of it in Manhattan, I decided I really wanted to give back. Um, and I, my, per- my way of doing that was to be on a whole bunch of nonprofit boards, ranging from human services to arts and culture, museums, and so forth. And I learned a couple things. Well, one of the things I learned is I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Which, frankly, uh, in California, you have to uh, go to you have to have classes to cut somebody's hair, and here you have people dealing with people's lives on boards of directors. I even chair some boards without any training, specific training. Now, I had an MBA forty years ago, but you know, that doesn't really apply. Uh, so that was the first thing. The second thing is, so I decided I really need to get some education. Second thing is, um, I saw all these folks uh, in every nonprofit I worked with, and they were all struggling, struggling for funding. What does yeah. that mean? You know, they can't pay people what they should be paid. They have old equipment. They're always concerned. They don't have reserves. 
I said, well, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So I went back to school and I got a second master's. I think I was the oldest student in school. Um, and it was in nonprofit leadership uh, and management. And there, one other thing happened. I met some really, really bright young people who, unlike me, when I was growing up, all you want to do is go to Wall Street, make money, and then write big checks to nonprofits. These folks really wanted to make a difference. And they're exciting. So right. here come the book. Now, one last thing is I realized I getting a little long in the tooth and I need to have someone who's born with an iPhone in their hand. So I asked my good friend, Matt Craig, uh, who is vice president of JP Morgan Chase and runs uh, San Diego business and nonprofit consulting group um, to join with me. And he's a lot younger and he's an expert in nonprofit finance. So that's what we did. And we went out and we interviewed about 60 nonprofit leaders across the country. Uh, and uh, it wasn't what we thought. We wanted to hear what they thought. So that's how the book came about. Fascinating, David. So tell me a little bit about your co. Tell me a little bit about um, Matt. Is in the Matt you said Matt Craig? Matt. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about him. So if he he's not with us today. I know he was. Uh, I know he regrets not being able to be us be with us. But uh, introduce him a little bit more. Uh, uh, tell us about his wife and kids or something. I don't know. Tell us a little bit about who he is. Matt, I, I worked with Matt uh, on a number of nonprofits before the book ever came about. And uh, Matt is, uh, he's like probably early 40s. Yeah. He's, uh, he's um, married, has a, his wife's a teacher. He has two small uh, children, twins, yeah. actually. Uh, and uh, basically, he works for J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, and yeah. frankly, I got to know him because he did, did such a great job with the nonprofits that uh, I worked with. Um, and Basically, again, I want someone who had a little younger perspective. Uh, and that's kind of one of the points we make in the book is diversity is so darn important. You know, I'm uh, you need to have any any nonprofit that doesn't have people, younger people represent on the board is not really representing uh, the uh, community that they're serving, in my view. And also they're missing out on people who you know have a much better understanding of technology and contemporary thinking. So uh, that's Matt. Great guy. Yeah. And I think he's. So, so tell me before we dive into our topic, and I want to hear about the book. It's got a great title, and it certainly sounds like it's it's got a strong message. But David, one of the things that I have because I, I've I've last five years I've really gotten into my own writing. I published my first book and working on my second right now, and, and, and really really found a lot of joy in that. But I got to tell you, I, what I have read of people who attempt to collaborate and co-author books together. It is a whole different. It is a whole different can of worms, and it's a whole different type of challenge. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys sort of navigated that? I mean, did you essentially divide the book in half and say, "I'll write the first half, and you write the second half," or how does that collaboration really work? Sure. Well, bear in mind he's got a full time job, uh, right? And <laughs> but we, of course, we sat down. We divided the book in half, and he'll write half the chapters, and I wrote half the chapters. Well, that yeah. lasted about weeks. And I and you know it was clear it was not going to work. Um, so what we did is I and we both did research, both did a lot of research, and that's important. Yeah. Uh, but I I took the first draft of each chapter, uh, and uh, he then uh, revised it. And frankly, I thought that worked great because we've got two voices. And yeah. uh, you know I think it was and it turned out to be very efficient. Uh, it was fine. It took yeah. us a long time because we did a year, uh, spent a year doing research. Um, and every time we did the research, of course, we had to tape the interviews and code the data and so forth. Um, and that was a whole experience itself. But it, frankly, I think it worked out just fine. 
Fascinating, David. Well, tell us. Uh, so the name of the book is Building Smart Nonprofits. Sounds like you interviewed over 60 leaders in order to accomplish this. I think you got a copy of the book in your hand for our uh, video, uh, Building Smart Nonprofits, a Roadmap for Mission Success. So tell me, d- tell me, David, what's the what's the sort of the all of our guests generally come on here on the podcast with a big idea, or bold opinion. So what's the if I'm if I'm opening up the book today, what's the sort of the big idea, or bold opinion? First thing I come to. Well, uh, the first thing you come to is the, is the part of the original purpose of the book. Uh, our original name for the book was Requiem for the Gala. Um, now, our, <laughs> I love it. But it was meant to be that there's a better way to to fund nonprofits. Oh, look, I love galas. I go to lots of them. Sure, we they're all really do. Friend, they're friend raisers, not fundraisers. Yeah. Um, they're a great place to, to, I think, frankly, thank the people who are supporting your organization. Yeah. And if you thank them, with and they'll support you more. But the point is, it's not a way to build a sustainable uh, funding model. And that's the key. We're using the word funding model here. Uh, and uh, because uh, nonprofits cannot live hand to mouth, uh, they need to have, just like any other ed- enterprise, they sure. need to have reserves, they need to be able to take risk and so forth. So the purpose of the book is, okay, what are the building blocks you have to put in place to develop a sustainable funding model? That was the purpose of the book. Um, and again, uh, we were lucky very early on. Uh, someone said to us, okay, um, that's nice, but why don't you go out there and do some grounded research? And as a result, we went out again, contacted 60 people across the country, which is an interesting comment on the nonprofit world in many respects. Because can you imagine if I called you up and you're the head of General Motors and I said, hi, I'm David, David Nobody from Hamul, California, and I'd like to hear about how you run your business. Click at yeah. the end of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But these really, really want to help people. And we got through to some of the top leaders in the country. And, you know, who are we? But they want to help nonprofits. That's why they're nonprofits to begin with, because they want to help people. And frankly, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience for us. Okay, so what we did is we basically, we asked them, uh, you know, five or six questions related to their expertise. Sure. And, you know, sure. the other questions we that we were, again, fortunate, um, the... Uh, Former CEO of the James Irvine Foundation, uh, California's second largest uh, private foundation, who's now the CEO of the Bar Foundation in Boston, said, you know, maybe you ought to talk to my friend, uh, Bill Buchanan, the head of the uh, Center for Effective Philanthropy. Uh, He's got some very, very specific ideas about business suits who think all you have to do is be more like a business and the nonprofit will solve all the problems. And boy, I'm so glad we did. Uh, because the book wouldn't have been done very well. Uh, and that was a consistent theme that we found speaking with people is uh, you need to have not a business model, but you need to have funding models. And there's differentiation. Yeah. And frankly, being more like a business, we found as a lightning rod in the nonprofit world. And for many good reasons, nonprofits are not businesses. Right. Sure, they have business techniques, but they, they exist for a totally different purpose totally different shareholders uh, and very different measurement standards. So, um, David, that was really- David, when you're, when you're interviewing these uh, 60 nonprofit leaders, <clears throat> because I agree with you hundred percent, I think we've gotten um, in, in a number of authors in our space and, and even outside the nonprofit space have, have addressed this issue that for too long we've bought hook, line and sinker into the idea that nonprofit organizations should behave by, like for profits. But <clears throat> I'm wondering if 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 any of your if you're any of the people that you interviewed sort of had really grasped 
the reality that it is it is the time it is at the times when the when the private sector when the for profit sector when the economy is going well and when Walmart and Target and Amazon and all the other for profit enterprises that we know and understand to be that part of that sector in our world it is generally when those when the economy turns sour and those enterprises are not generally thriving when we're given the opportunity to step up and really shine you know when you think about when you think about uh, covid-19 that we're all sitting in the midst of right now we're all sitting in a time period where a lot of these for-profit companies are just especially if they're small businesses just trying to keep the lights on and the bills paid and people on the payroll this is also the same time when nonprofit organizations ought to be at their best. We ought to be thriving in times like this because the rest of the world is really messy and unpredictable right now. Did any of the people that you interviewed sort of really seem to get that? Um, had, had they had they thought through it at that level, or were they uh, or were they not quite there? Uh, I don't think they were quite there, and uh, frankly, I think the point that. The most important was again that their nonprofits are different. Um, but you know, frankly, yes, uh, nonprofits are really it is their turn at the table. Uh, but yeah. unfortunately, a lot of them, because they don't have the resources and they don't have the reserves are struggling, struggling very. Some of them are doing great, right? But uh, many of them are not, like museums, uh, those kinds of things. But every cloud has a silver lining, and what we found is our work with nonprofits throughout the pandemic is that they're learning a, a tremendous amount. What do, you know, crisis uh, creates change. And yeah. a couple of things that they're first of all, they are recognizing that they, they're re-examining everything they've done and where their funding sources are coming from and some and throwing out what doesn't work and bringing on new funding techniques and new uh, operations that are going to survive post-pandemic. Yeah. They're also learning um that uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of expertise in their boards, uh, and those boards are jumping in to, with, uh, to help through the crisis. I wrote an article called All Hands on Deck, uh, which was basically meant to be you know, the sailboat that's uh, 100 miles offshore in the middle of a race at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the captain says, all hands on deck, we've got a short sail, this is sure. coming up. Everyone comes on deck, and they all concentrate on the task at hand, not what their job description is, but get done as a team what needs to be done to save the ship. Yeah. Now, when they get back to port, I can guarantee that crew wins a lot of races. But what we're seeing is that nonprofits uh, with their boards are building this tremendous spirit of, of teamwork. You know, we're all in this together. And I can tell you, I'm a much better director than I was before. I'm still on a number of boards. I know the operations a lot more because I've had to dig in. And frankly, to some extent, it's great because when this is over, frankly, I think it's going to be a great time to be in nonprofits. And a lot of nonprofits will have energized their boards, energized their staff, built learning organizations like uh, Senge says, and uh, will be better off for it. Now, they're obviously they're suffering, but again, um, some of them are really making see, most see, that's the – I mean, isn't, isn't David – see, that's the, that's the notion that sort of – I wrestle with most. So I teach over the local college. I've got, I've got got their social entrepreneurship class and I teach their nonprofit management course. And I'm always sort of talking, oh, I'm always sort of talking to the students about the idea that somebody has to be doing things right when the world gets messy and unpredictable. And, and I don't, I, I, I don't settle well, David, into the idea. 
I, I just don't settle into the idea that it's the nonprofit sector, just like everybody else, you know, just like the federal government and, and, and Walmart, to just sort of sit and wait until the economy turns around. I think we ought to be the ones, and, and maybe this is utopian and you tell me differently, but I think we ought to be the ones that are really sort of stepping up to the plate and shining, not sitting here sort of saying, okay, when are we going to see some recovery? Who's going to bail us out? And, and and so that we can get back to sort of fixing things when, quite frankly, Walmart and Target do it just fine. Do, do you follow what I'm well, saying? I mean, if, if 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 the nonprofit sector can't keep people employed in the midst of COVID-19, why do we why do we need the nonprofit sector to begin with? I, I think that's the I think we've so convoluted. I think we've so convoluted the role of the nonprofit sector with the federal government and with the private sector that we don't really know who we are to begin with. Well, that may be true. Um, first of all, uh, some nonprofits are thriving and doing exactly right, right, right. Um, I'm on a board of a fa- an international community foundation, yeah. and we doubled our giving, doubled our granting in Mexico with food security in Baja, California during the Right. See, that's, that, that's the type of stories I think we need to be telling, because if you're raising twice as much money now as you were raising pre-COVID, then you're also probably doubling down on the level of services that you're able to provide. You're also keeping people employed. I mean, those are the types of organizations that we ought to be celebrating. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the challenge there is you need to, again, you have to have a sustainable source of revenue. Now, you have, for example, we have in Baja, California, developed an incredible food distribution network uh, with our partners. We didn't do it. We helped fund it. But um, that really has to survive beyond the pandemic. Uh, it has to survive beyond major giving. One of the things I worry about, are we going to have a backlash with funders? Well, you know, I gave so much during the pandemic. Uh, now, this year, right. times are better. The pandemic is gone. What am I going to do? So, again, that comes to the biggest part of the book, sustainable sources of revenue. And, frankly, I believe and we believe and found that most nonprofits do have the ability to build sustainable sources of revenue. It's simply that they need to uh, do what uh, William Foster, a senior partner at Bridgeman, says, match money with mission. What does he mean by that? Is needs to you need to develop uh, your special sauce, your intellectual property, yeah. and then turn that into a sustainable revenue model. I can give you lots of examples. I'll give you one. Please do. Uh, yeah. uh, in uh, San Diego, we have a museum, the USS Midway Museum. So a bunch of uh, civic leaders uh, brought this huge uh, aircraft carrier from well before World War II to uh, San Diego and plopped it in the old San Diego Bay. And they looked around, and they found that most museums, uh, ship museums around the country, old warships, were losing their shirts. Uh, and they said, we can't do this. And they had two years to think about it, and it developed a revenue model, which is basically they're in competition with SeaWorld. Uh, and they're basically every year uh, among the top 10 uh, tourist attractions in the United States uh, on TripAdvisor. Uh, as a result, they're running a theme park to support their mission, which is to keep the spirit of uh, the Midway and enduring freedom alive. Uh, and they are generating $40 million a year in revenue, $10 million in surplus on year after year. Uh, and frankly, uh, actually supporting, they have their own foundation now, supporting other uh, nonprofits 
uh, there again, was they developed a funding model with their intellectual right. property. What's their intellectual property? How to run a theme park. Um, and most nonprofits know how to do things very, very well. They don't realize they have intellectual property that can be monetized. People think intellectual property is things like uh, you know, uh, writing code. It's not. It's what comes from the mind. Uh, and I can give you any number of examples where, where nonprofits have used that intellectual property, their secret sauce, to build sustainable revenue models. So, so, so David, I, I, I routinely have these experiences. So I'm having these conversations. Uh, you know, we're, we're broadcasting this conversation twice a week, generally. And so, so, sometimes you're sitting there in an interview and the person you're interviewing, just like you all were interviewing these 60 nonprofit leaders, you just hear sort of those aha moments. You're like, wow, where did that come? Way out in left field. Didn't expect to hear that. What were some of those things when you're working on this book? Again, for my listeners, the name of the book is Building Smart Nonprofits. So, David, what are the things that you heard? Just those aha moments. Like, why isn't that already in a book somewhere? <clears throat> well, I told you about the first aha moment. was going to be a business suit. Um, and that was, I heard consistently. Um, frankly, uh, again, what I what I heard most a couple of things we heard. One was, um, you know, and I hate to say this, but it's leadership, uh, and the world does not need another book on leadership. But that was foremost the most important thing that was uh, item that was repeated, and I can go into again details, but in by almost every leader. It starts with the leader. Secondly, what's very interesting was risk-taking. Risk-taking is, is again, requires strong leadership, uh, but it's, it requires, it, frankly, also is a major reason why some of these nonprofits are doing very, very well. Um, you know, we talked about funding models. Yeah. Um, I think, what can I say? The, there are a number of factors that we found that were consistent. Again, we talked about the funding model. We talked about leadership. We talked about the massive changes. This was this was an aha moment for me. Massive changes that are coming about in the funding of the nonprofit sector. Where it's called environmental, social, and governmental uh, investing, uh, and there is a tsunami of capital, huge tsunami that is coming in and is coming in and building all the time, where people like me, want to invest their money, but they want to invest their money and do social good with it as well. And today, one-third of the investing in this country by individuals has a social context. Uh, if, if we take 1% of the investments, uh, individual investments that are made every year by people, that would double, that alone, an additional 1% would double the amount of charitable giving in the United States every year. And with that are coming a whole new raft of uh, People who are designing products to allow nonprofits to bridge the gap between these people who want to invest in this way, like in impact finance and other things, uh, and people who need the money. I call Wall Street the third sector. Um, and, you know, there are what – what do we know about Wall Street? They follow the money. A, B, they're awfully good at efficient, at designing programs to get that money in the hands of the people who want to use it and take it from the people who want to invest it. And there's a whole cadre. Major mainstream banks, uh, investment banks, are addressing this market because it's what people want. And what does that mean? It's opening up a world of capital to nonprofits that didn't exist before. And there's a guy, uh, I don't know if you ever read the book uh, on charitable. Oh, sure. I've very much read most of Dan's stuff. Yeah. 
I thought it was a great book. Sure. It's very controversial. And he, he for his time, he said, what would happen if we had a mechanism by which nonprofits could access investment capital uh, like for-profits? Boy, was he right on. He was a little earlier than his yeah. time. And I see this that's changing, changing the industry dramatically, dramatically. And, you know, when we talk about Requiem for the Gala, uh, what we're talking about is there are whole new funding sources. Now, your show is very often about funding, right? Uh, uh, fundraising. Well, let's broaden that definition to funding from a point of view of accessing the capital that is available through these mechanisms, A, and B, accessing the changing dynamics. That was another thought um, of the of the funders, traditional foundation and so forth, philanthropists, Basically, in the old days, it was the, old, the golden rule. People about the golden rule. Not anymore. Things like trust-based uh, grant making are coming yeah. on very, very strong. Says, hey, we're in this together. We don't have all the answers. We're trying to solve some very difficult problems. And we're going to work together. Um, and we're not going to make limited grants. We're going to make seed capital investments to give the, uh, the uh, organizations the opportunity to build funding models that will, again, be sustainable. Let me give you one example. And the other was collaboration, another big factor. Uh, and funders are basically funding collaboration because they recognize the problems that people are trying to solve are, you know, society's most swampy problems. Well, you know, uh, how do you solve them? We band together in what are called virtuous ecosystems of yeah. collaboration. The organization we saw in Denver uh, it was called Work Now. Fascinating organization. It was funded with a $1 million grant from the Denver Foundation, which frankly is a terrific organization, yep. seed capital, and 20 organizations banded together to help to solve the problem of unemployment in Denver. Um, now, Denver was booming at the time, uh, and but there's still a lot of people in dead-end, low-income, minimum-wage jobs who didn't have any skills. So if I'm a young man in Denver, and I want to learn a skill, well, first of all, can I get to work? Do I have a car? These, these 20 organizations banded together and said, you do this, you do that. I'm going to do what I do best. You're going to do what you do best. And collectively, we're going to solve this problem. So one member of the group provided transportation. Oh, I've got kids. I need daycare. So another group provided daycare. Work tools. Any work tools and clothes. Someone else provided that. Well, in a year... They placed 200 people in jobs uh, that were paying two to three times the minimum wage. Uh, and the program became self-sufficient because the contract, and Denver was going through a construction boom at the time, uh, and the contractors who wanted those people uh, to, to uh, do their work paid for the program, and it's now yeah. self-sufficient. So again, capital, seed capital, investment capital um, went in. And came at the other end a couple of things. People collaborated. They did what they did best. And two, they developed a sustainable funding model. You know, David, um, when, when you're interviewing these executive leaders, so you got 30, uh, 60, I'm sorry, 60 individuals. One of the one of the sentiments that I think, I don't know if sentiment's the right word, but one of the... One of the things that I see far too, what I believe far too many of my colleagues in sort of the consulting and the advisory space sort of perpetuating is almost this underlying implicit fear 
that that the that the person in the seat that you're interviewing has of the of the of the major donor of the individual who has those has those resources and it seems to me that to get to the place that you're talking about because you're not the only you guys aren't the only ones sort of talking about the way that these the, sort of the collaborative relationships that are oftentimes being formed now between the organ between the nonprofit and the funders but you've got to have a pretty level playing field a certain level of confidence and you can't be scared of that fella or that gal on the other side of the table. Am I right? I mean, I'm guessing that the 60 people you interviewed that would most likely talk about these innovative ideas that you're you're referring to, you can't be afraid of the donor and you can't do these relationships at an arm's length. Am I right? Well, you're absolutely right. But actually, what we found was that Donors would tell us, people who ran major fund, funding operations tell us, hey, you know, we can, we, our biggest concern is nonprofits don't want to tell us bad news. They don't want to tell us when things aren't working. Uh, and, you know, if you told us, maybe we can bring in resources. Right, right. You. That's exactly, uh, we, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So your donor is, is affirming exactly what I'm saying. If, if the donor is saying to you and, to you and Matt that, that, that the organization doesn't want to tell us bad news. My guess is, is that there's an underlying fear there on the part of the organization that's saying, if we tell this donor something, this funder, we don't have to call him a, a donor necessarily because some of these relationships aren't necessarily charitable gifts. But if you're so damn afraid that the individual on the other side of the table is going to literally, literally jump out and bite your head off or something, um, you're not going to know how to negotiate these collaborative sort of innovative agreements. Am I right? Well, uh, if you're afraid, that's absolutely correct. However, what we're finding is um, some nonprofits we thought were doing extraordinarily well celebrated their failures. They they had open mic uh, meetings where everyone would get up and say, "What did we do wrong?" Led by by the foundation. Okay, that's that the organization. That's them. the organization and, I want to know. So I want to hear about that organization. <laughs> well, basically, there, there were a number of them, but essentially. What we found is that if when you admit yeah. your mistakes uh, and have that kind of relationship, it doesn't hurt your relationship. It burnishes your relationship yeah. with that funding source because now an element of trust. And, you know, the trust, the words trust-based financing, uh, trust-based grant making yeah. have real meaning. Um, you know, I trust you that we trust each other, that we don't have all the answers, and we're going to do our best to solve yeah. these problems. And it is really strong. And we're not going to give you funding to get you started. Uh, we're not going to uh, get you funding that takes you uh, to uh, turns into a peer. Uh, we're going to build, you know, peers do. Right, fall right, exactly. When the funding runs out, we're going to build a bridge. We're giving you investment capital. We're going to build a bridge to long-term sustainability. Uh, and that's what we're finding. And, frankly, it's, it's happening a lot. Yeah. It really is. And it's amazing because if you don't know this, it's it's exciting. And I can tell you it's, it's a I've very, been, very I've exciting. I've been spending time, David, and I'm sure he's not an unfamiliar author to you. Anybody who's in the organizational theory and management space under knows who Carl Weck is. But Carl Weck is that is that author who started, and we're talking about organizational settings, um, oftentimes in the for-profit space, but he's talking about in a lot of the writing that he talks about, he talks about highly reliable organizations. And one of those characteristics of a highly reliable organization is an organization 
that, I mean, almost doubles down and studies their failures. So they're, they're doing what you're describing there in that setting where they're, they're saying, we failed, we screwed up. Now let's actually deep dive into it. Let's examine it, interrogate it. Find, you know, we're not like totally wiping out and, and firing everyone, but let's learn from this because what, what it, what Weck and his, and his other colleagues would tell you, um, and his other researchers would tell you is that when you study failure, you that's where those learning opportunities really are. And, and if it, and it, and, 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 and the thing that sort of occurs to me is, is if you've got donors or funders saying on the other side of the table, they won't talk to us about anything other than what makes us feel warm and fuzzy. Um, then, then you also can't be aware of where perhaps you're making a fail, where you're making a misstep in those relationships with those individuals. Um, you know, if I screw up, if I screw up a conversation with my wife or my kids, I want to sit down and have a meaningful conversation with them and sort of assess, okay, how could I have done that better? Um, if you're only showing the warm and fuzzy side of your organization, you're not going to get the benefit of that with your with your funders. Am I right? Absolutely, yeah. you're absolutely correct. And but, yeah, you know, frankly, it's changing, and I think it's changing dramatically. In the old days, yeah, does it still exist? But it's like the the old overhead myth, right? The nonprofit yeah. uh, starvation cycle. It's done. Thank goodness. Rest in peace. You know, the, the concept that you can't, I don't want, I'm not going to pay for overhead. I'm not going to pay for computers. It's like going to an ice cream parlor and saying, I, I pay for the cone and the ice cream, but I'm not going to pay for the freezer. What costs you and your electric bill? It's insane. That's, that's managing scarcity, not managing uh, yeah. prosperity. Uh, and frankly, the good news is look around. I'm sure you find this. It's just about dead. It's yeah. very close to being dead. Even the U.S. government and their grants are, Allowing for overhead now. Thank goodness. And I think that's a good example of how the old paradigms and like like you just mentioned, which I call the golden rule or the fear factor, the old paradigms, frankly, I think everyone spoke to, everyone to a person talked about how these are dying now. I, th- I think the thing that the nonprofit sector has to come to realize, to the realization, though, too, David, and maybe you heard this in some of your interviews, is that... I'm, and again, I haven't done the, and, and maybe if we had our, our friend, if we had Dan on here, he could tell us he did a very rigorous study and a very robust book on this notion of the overhead, uh, overhead uh, myth. But I think, I think sometimes the, the nonprofit sector in our, with our, with our history, often in the fundraising space being very rooted in PR and marketing and, and, and advertising, for example, I think we're oftentimes conjuring up these, these marketing gimmicks, these marketing schemes that perhaps give us a, presumably give us a competitive edge, edge in terms of how we communicate with large mass market constituencies, only to find out that it sort of shoots us in the foot. And I don't think enough of us who are st- – and we've been talking about the overhead myth now for perhaps two decades. And, 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 and I mean, I remember being early in my career in Washington, D.C., and the overhead myth was a you know frontlining issue at the time. But if I'm not mistaken, the overhead myth is something that we conjured up in order to differentiate, differentiate ourselves from other nonprofits. I don't think it was the private sector, and I don't think it was the federal government that came up with the overhead ratio. Um and, and that's what I hope when someone's reading a book like yours 
and, 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 and listening to the, these interviews, these 60 interviews, that they realize that some of the dangers that we cause ourselves is not the federal government and it's not the, uh, it's not the, you know, the Richie Wealth donor who makes money, you know, buying and selling trades of Amazon. It's, it's, we can be our own worst enemy. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. And, you know, it's it's like I, I always come back to Nancy Reagan. Just say no. <laughs> when people are offering you money, not provide you with uh, paying the yeah. total cost. Right, right. Don't take it. Now, that's very easy for David O'Brien to say because he's not relying. I don't have yeah. to meet payroll next week. So, you know, these are naughty problems. I'm not looking to change. But, frankly, we do see, I think, a lot of problems. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I, I think... I think coming out of COVID-19, I'm interested to know if you, what's your thoughts on this? When you think back on the research that you all did, again, to, for my for my listeners' sake, the name of the book is Building Smart Nonprofits. We'll put a link in the bottom. But before we let, before we let David go, when you think back on the, the 60 individuals that you all interviewed in this, this research, it sounds like fascinating research. It's certainly worth all of our listeners going out and grabbing a copy of the book. But do you think these are people that are better prepared for both the current reality that we're in? If, if COVID sort of lingers for a while, continues to sort of beat down the economy, are these people better prepared for that? And then on the other side, when we do sort of get, enter into this true recovery zone, are these the people that are going to really turn around the non-pro- nonprofit sector and do some remarkable stuff? Well, Here's the here's my view uh, and, and a little bit of background. When I wrote this book, I was cynical. <laughs> I was very cynical. Uh, well, it's because I had some experience to wrestle with people I yeah, really yeah, loved I getting yes. hurt. Uh, I went into this with that concept. I came out of it with a tremendous okay. sense of optimism and incredible. And now my I still work with nonprofits throughout the pandemic. That's even reinforced my sense of optimism and. You know, frankly, the takeaway that I see, and I just wrote a blog on this this morning, uh, is that I wish I was 40 years younger and yeah. just going into the sector. Um, it's a great time yeah. to be a nonprofit. Um, you know, I've talked about how the nonprofits have learned, how funders have learned. I've talked about the tsunami of capital that's coming in. It's changing the whole dynamics, how, um, you know, the the uh, funders have, have changed dramatically, how how there's a teamwork between the uh, nonprofits and their boards. Um, there's, uh, you know, incredible, incredible changes taking place. And frankly, I think they're going to yeah. come roaring out of this uh, when it's going to come out. And I hope to yeah. really be involved more than ever. Now, I do worry about a little bit about bounce back, about, you know, I, again, well, you talked to this before, I've written uh, double my uh, spending last year for for uh, nonprofit giving because of the pandemic. So I'm going to cut back this year. Well, but again, I think a lot of work has been done, and what's happened is that people are going to uh, work more in terms. So of uh, I, I don't want to miss that point before I let you go. So so you're saying you you personally have doubled your giving in the last year? Is that is that what I heard? That, that that's a, yeah, yeah okay see and I think yeah. I think that's particularly important for people to hear because um, I, I think I think there's a lot of people in your seat and uh, and and I think there's a lot of people who are more inclined to be more generous in hard times like this and if we've set ourselves up and I suspect this is again some of the information that sort of comes in between the lines and perhaps very explicitly in your book 
if these 60 leaders recognize that an individual like yourself is seeing the world at a difficult, troublesome, unpredictable, complex, and messy time, um, you also know how to reach deeper into your pocketbook and say, I'll, I'll give more. I, I think that's a human impulse in response to tragedy and fear. And anxiety. I, I think I think a psychologist could explain that pretty well. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I agree. But, but also, I think there's a yeah. closeness that's developed. Um, you know, and uh, I now have to know more about the people I'm giving with. I'm hoping more for them. So I'm going to get yeah. more involved. The more I get involved, and hopefully probably thank me, the more I'll, I want to stay involved. And I'm not suggesting that uh, nonprofits are going to get off the charitable giving uh, font. That's yeah. never going to happen, nor should it happen. Uh, I'm just suggesting that there are, there's going to be a lot of other ways uh, where people are going to uh, to fund them. You know, one of the areas we saw, and you talked about the capitalists going to the market, we, there was a lot that came out yeah. because of impact financing. Well, what happened with impact financing? Impact financing, it used to be in the old days, um, nonprofits would do double-blind studies to find out if they're having an impact. It would take years to do. It was very expensive. It was out of date from the time I got it. Now they're boiling down the metrics that I can – determine whether my programs have a true impact to very, very simple techniques, like yeah. evaluation hacks. Um, and as a result, I can now turn around that impact on a nonprofit. I can turn around the, and tell my donors, prove to my donors that what I'm doing is really having impact. And what does that mean? I can do develop tremendous storytelling, which is another point yes. in a whole chapter of storytelling. The book is you know, I can now shout if I get the data. My, my programs are effective. I can shout it from the rooftops. Uh, I can build, you know, more trust with the donor because I know that I'm having impact. I know I'm not just measuring outputs. I'm measuring impact. You know, if I'm running a, a nonprofit, if I'm running a, a shelter for homeless people, um, I can say, hey, look at all the beds I filled last night. That doesn't mean right. I'm solving homelessness. That's measuring yes, right. not impacts. So I think there again, it's another factor that's because of this new capital who wants to put the money out but is not going to and wants to is basically getting paid back based on the amount of impact that's created. Now they're developing all these measurements and now nonprofits have the, that data and now they can use that data not only to find out for themselves what, what they're doing is working, but tell others, hey, look what I'm doing. Um, you know, David, this has been a fascinating conversation. We're creeping up on 40 minutes and we lose our listeners about five minutes ago. And I don't want to, I don't want to exhaust any more of our conversation. We'd be delighted to have you back. And we certainly want to extend an invitation to Matt when he figures out the technology on his end. (laughs) He is certainly welcome back. Uh, For my listeners, I want to remind everyone that the name of the book is Building Smart Nonprofits. Um, it is now available. I'm guessing we can find this book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and probably anywhere else. Uh, David, is there, uh, is there any, if someone's listening today, they want to reach out, they know how to find me, but they want to reach out and find you. Uh, how would you suggest that they do that? Uh, well, you can go to my blog, our blog site, which is uh, requiem to the gala.org or building spot, smart nonprofits.org. Sign up for our blog. Give me a call. I'd love to chat with you. I love nonprofits because I love what they're doing. And frankly, I wish I had done this and gotten out of the finance world a long time ago. 
uh, the, you know, the for-profit finance world because it's so rewarding, so happy to help in any way. That's why I wrote the book. That's why Matt and I wrote the book. Thank you, sir. It has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Thank you so much. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must-read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all-too-familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges are in great beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.